All right. Thank you, worship team. That was a great song. I love that last, uh, that second to last verse, I think it was, where we're going to be saved to sin no more. Wouldn't that be nice? We won't have to confess our sins anymore because we'll be past that state of sinning once the Lord takes us all home. Oh, what a beautiful thought. Well, this morning, as we have been having the Sunday evening uh, prayer meetings, and that's been wonderfully led by um, Pastor John Sapia, who attends our church, and also Brian Gaugan has been helping lead those, um, I decided on Sunday mornings I would stick with the theme of prayer. And so this morning, we're going to look at a prayer that just ought to knock our socks off. It's a great prayer. Uh, because it should make us think about what we're praying about. Anytime we read scripture about prayer, we should think about what are we praying about and and are we emulating the types of prayers that that are recorded in scripture. The believers in Acts 4 prayed that God would observe the threats of those opposed to the gospel and that he would give boldness to the believers to continue to speak the word and he would do miracles and healings and signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? In the end, for us today, we should pray for boldness to share Christ and for God to heal the sick as well. And before I go through the message, I want to just have you pay really close attention for a few minutes and be thinking these thoughts in your head, a few questions to consider as I'm preaching this morning from God's word. First is, do we have an urgency to share the gospel? Do we have an urgency to share the gospel? When faced with difficulty and opposition, how do we pray? When faced with difficulty and opposition, how do we pray? And the last question is, do we trust that God will see us through the mistreatment we will face when we share the gospel? Do we trust that God will see us through the mistreatment that we will face when we share the gospel. So we're going to look at a broader text here. It's actually a longer read than normal, but I think uh, we need to get the context of the prayer because our primary focus is uh, Acts chapter 4, 23 through 31. But we should probably have the context, right? Because the context is king, all right? We don't pull portions of scripture out of their context to make them say whatever we like. So in Acts 4, we're going to see that Peter and John have been preaching Christ, And they've been brought before a council, and we're going to look at that narrative for a moment and then focus on the response of the believers to this persecution they faced. So starting at verse 1 of Acts 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, 
rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to relieve the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, but we can, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people who were, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What a great story, huh? At the beginning of this passage, we see the, the priests and the captain of the temple And the Sadducees were greatly annoyed. In chapter 3, Peter and John had healed a lame beggar in the name of Jesus. And this had given them the opportunity to preach the gospel. And so Peter gave a sermon about Jesus. We saw 5,000 men came to Christ then. And they gave full credit to Jesus for the healing. And told people they needed to repent in order that times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. And they attested that Jesus is the prophesied one, the prophet like Moses. 
who would turn people from their wickedness. So there were several things that the Sadducees would not have liked about Peter's preaching. But it seems the main thrust of their annoyance is the teaching about Jesus that he was resurrected from the dead. And we know that from Matthew 22 that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And think of it like a denomination. You know, today we have all these denominations, and usually denominations form because there's some point of doctrine they disagree with the, the rest on. And so mainline denominations, you often see there's many offshoots. If someone disagreed on something and felt strongly enough about it, they separated and they basically formed their own denomination. And sometimes it has to do with doctrine. Sometimes it has to do with how the church is run, like the little, little church government or something like that. It happens today. I heard the number uh, just recently of the number of denominations that are Christian denominations, and it was a staggering number. But anyway, the Sadducees had staked their claim on the idea that there was no resurrection of the dead. And so that denomination, if you want to think of it that way, was completely dedicated to that idea, which seems to me rather fatalistic and depressing, sort of pessimistic, right? So if you were a Jew in those days and you took this pessimistic approach toward resurrection, then you were sad, you see. So when a denomination finds someone within, within the denomination teaching something against their own doctrine, what happens? They get riled up, Right? They would call them out. We would do that here, in fact. Did you know that? If you were a member in our church and we found out you were teaching something that goes against our statement of faith and beliefs, you would be called before the elders. We would have a conversation with you. If you were to teach, for example, that Jesus was not coming again, we would take issue with that. We would try to teach you uh, through Scripture what your error is. But if you did not correct it, then you would go through a process and ultimately be removed from membership because we take our doctrine seriously, right? Now, the Sadducees had a doctrine. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they had a problem with Peter and John big time because as, as they preached about the truth of Christ and his resurrection, it was against the teaching of the Sadducees. But the Sadducees were wrong about that. Nevertheless, they had Peter and John arrested and brought into a sort of hearing. And at this hearing, Peter again speaks boldly about Jesus. And they were astonished at the boldness of these men. They decided, all right, we're going to command them not to teach or speak at all in the name of Jesus. And you may remember their answer, Acts 4, 19 and 20. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God To listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So already, Peter and John were showing great boldness, astonishing boldness. And so when they were released, what did the people pray for? More boldness. Let's think for a moment what we might have prayed for if we were being told not to preach the gospel. In fact, we don't have to think too hard to come up with a current example of this. Last week in Canada, a number of brave pastors preached on biblical marriage in contravention to a new law that went into effect in January in Canada. 
The law says that no one can try to convert someone who is a homosexual. It's considered hateful to do so. There's a threat of five years in prison for anyone doing that. Franklin Graham said this about it. He said the Canadian pastors feel they've been stripped of their religious freedoms. And critics of the bill say it's broadly worded and could even encompass private conversations about the topic, such as when a pastor or a Christian shares what the Bible teaches about sexuality, Franklin Graham said. Another Christian writer said that Canada's new ban on what they are calling conversion therapy is a declaration of war on Christianity and God. An article I saw stated that over 4,000 Canadian pastors signed on to preach last week in protest to this government overreach at the risk of prison. Do you wonder what those pastors and their teams and their families prayed about the week before that? They were threatened not to speak on a biblical issue. Does this sound anything like Peter and John? Threatened with loss of personal freedom or worse, if they don't comply with those who tell them what they can or cannot teach? Did they pray that they could still preach and not get caught? Did they pray that they could obey the government rather than God and God would forgive them because it was a tough choice to make? Or did they pray that God would strike down and kill the leaders who were opposing them? Or did they pray like the believers in Acts 4? You see, we can learn so much from this passage in their prayer. First off, they prayed... As one. Acts 4, 23 and 24. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. They listed their voices together. This does not mean they literally chanted the same words, just to be clear. The recorded prayer sums up their prayers. But the important thing was the unity with which they prayed. And how does the prayer begin? With adoration. A recognition of God as the sovereign creator. Now this is a very important reminder to us. If we remind ourselves that he is the sovereign creator of the universe, then our confidence ought to be increasing. If we would remind us ourselves often of who God is and his power, then we would have much more confidence in the face of decisions that involve the choice of either obeying him and his word and his commands or going in another direction regardless of whatever pressures we might face. This is why beginning our prayers in recognition of who God is is very helpful for our own attitude in coming to him. Adoration or recognizing God and his attributes is a great way to begin your prayer. And so our Lord taught his disciples to pray. In the beginning, he said, Our Father in heaven, the one with the holy name, or hallowed be your name. These believers included people who had followed Jesus and heard his teaching from his very mouth, so it's no surprise that they learned from him about the way to begin a prayer. Another quality of their prayer that we should emulate is that they used Scripture. The Bible Exposition Commentary says it was a united prayer meeting as they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. The people were of one heart and mind, and God was pleased to answer their requests. Division in the church always hinders prayer 
and robs the church of spiritual power. Their praying was based solidly on the word of God, in this case, Psalm 2. The word of God and prayer must always go together. In his word, God speaks to us and tells us what he wants to do. In prayer, we speak to him and make ourselves available to accomplish his will. True prayer is not telling God what to do, but asking God to do his will in us and through us. It means getting God's will done on earth, not man's will done in heaven. Their prayer brought scripture to bear on their current circumstance. The more immersed you are in God's word, the more you will see how it applies to your daily life and the world around you. The more you study God's word, the more your prayers will come into alignment with God's will. You see, people have twisted many scriptures in regards to what we should pray for. So when Jesus said we could ask anything in his name and receive it, some people say, well, that means whatever I want. I ask in Jesus' name and he's got to give it to me. But that's not the right way to look at it. You see, our prayers that will be answered are not the prayers that focus on what I want, but the prayers that focus on what God wants. Peter Marshall was a a pastor and and a chaplain of the U.S. Senate, I think in the 40s, if I remember right. And his prayers were so good when he would pray to open the session at, at the Senate that they were actually printed in almost every newspaper in the country. How far have we come from that? His wife, Catherine, wrote a biography about him called A Man Called Peter. And she said something to the effect that when our prayers align with God's will, then his will becomes our will. In other words, if we dedicate ourselves to knowing God's word and desiring him, then as we mature in the faith, as we pray, we will pray more and more his will. But the real beauty is that when we pray his will, it will become our will as well. And that our, our will, as Catherine uh, said, would align with God's will. Because we want the same things he does. And the scripture that they went to is from Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... So the believers identified who they were considering to apply this passage to, Psalm 2. They applied it to Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel. And what were those people doing? They were opposing Jesus. Acts 4.27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. In other words, these disciples more or less felt the whole world around them was opposed to them spreading the gospel. I wonder how many Canadian pastors and congregations felt that way. Everyone's against them, it seems. You see, the law that was passed saying you can't convert a homosexual or you face up to five years in prison was not just barely passed. It was unanimously passed. The prime minister made a statement, a proud statement that they had passed this law, how progressive Canada is by eliminating what he referred to as despicable and degrading practice 
of actually trying to help people understand who God created them to be and become that person. He called it despicable and degrading. Friends, we need to be awake and pay attention. Only a decade or two ago, even non-believers in our nation would have defended the right of the church to teach the Bible, but that's becoming less and less the case. There is more persecution of Christians today than any time in history. You can see stories on the Alliance website. You can go to Voice of the Martyrs website and see story after story of people suffering in terrible ways or even being killed for their faith. The time when we could spin the little globe and say, but that's not here, is done. We step nearer and nearer to real persecution. There's almost a daily progression toward less and less tolerance for God and the Bible and his commandments and the preaching of God's word. And sadly, even my preaching would not be accepted in many so-called Christian churches this morning. And I'm as patriotic as any of you. I believe in the ideals of our founders. However, I can't ignore the track our nation is on. Free speech is under assault, especially if you disagree with certain powerful people. The states, red and blue, are becoming more and more polarized. If you think that just one or two elections might right the ship, I have bad news for you. There's no candidate that will bring America back to morality again. Stop hoping that will happen. The only hope for America is Jesus Christ and his church. So what will the church do if or when the time comes when we are told, like Peter and John, do not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus? What will we do if a law is passed that says, if you preach this doctrine, you're going to jail? What will we do if our friends or family tell us, you need to give up these old-fashioned biblical ideas, or you're not coming to our Thanksgiving anymore, or our Easter, or anything else? Will you choose the comforts of this world or over obedience to God, or will we trust that in his sovereignty, he has control over the things that we think are out of control? You see, the disciples in Acts 4 recognize not only God as creator, but God as Lord of the timeline. Did he allow Herod and Pontius Pilate and the rest to rage against Jesus? Or is he God of the timeline? They believed God had ordained those events. Acts 4.28, do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And when you agree that God is the God of the timeline, then maybe your trust in him will be stronger. Maybe you can endure a little more, knowing that he's determined ahead of time what you will go through. What is good for you, that is, if you love him. And that's why Paul said that God's spirit helps us pray. In Romans 8, 26, likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches words knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so these believers agreed with God that whatever happened was what his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. They prayed then that God would do what he had already planned to do. Their prayers, their will, 
was aligned with God's will. And now you see what their prayer was for. Acts 4.29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. There's two take action or imperative words in this prayer. Look and grant. Look upon their threats and grant boldness. Look upon their threats. That doesn't mean in any way that the believers thought God was unaware of what's going on. Sometimes our prayers are more about us needing to hear ourselves agreeing with God. And what they are saying, I think, is this. We want to stay strong in spite of this persecution. They want God to look or observe the threats. The word means take notice, take concern with. It isn't a visual taking notice as much as they want God to know about what is happening and be concerned with it. Again, it doesn't mean they think God isn't paying attention, but rather parts of prayer are often reminding ourselves that God is paying attention. And we might feel that way at times. God, don't you see what's going on here? I was sharing with some people yesterday some thoughts I've had about people who have been hurt by churches. There's a part of me that wants to say, God, don't you see what's going on here? How can this happen in your church and in your name? But ultimately, I have to realize, as believers in this prayer did, that what happens is according to his hand and his plan. He isn't unaware of the people who have been hurt by the church and in his name. But I want people who have been hurt to heal from that and experience Jesus in a healthy environment. That's why I will never stop reminding myself and all of us that we have a duty to be unified and have healthy relationships within the church so that people can come that have been hurt and be healed. So they want to know that God is aware of what's going on and they ask to be granted the ability to continue to speak his word with boldness and to continue to heal and do signs and wonders. And this prayer really sets up the whole rest of the book of Acts, doesn't it? You see, this was the attitude of the believers. This was their passion. This was their drive to obey Christ and his command to go and make disciples. Preacher's commentary again says, the final conviction of the church's prayer was that God would confirm the witness of the church with a continuation of signs and wonders. They expected miracles to attend their preaching. That's why they prayed for more boldness and more manifestation of the Holy Spirit's power for further visible proof that God had heard their prayer for courage. Amazing. They prayed for the, for the Lord to continue the healings which had caused such consternation and trouble. Remember that? You go back to the whole reason they were on trial in the first place. They healed a guy. And they're actually praying for the very thing to happen again that got them in trouble. The spectacular events spread across the pages of Acts can be traced, all of them, back to praying like that. And throughout this episode, the healing of the lame beggar, Peter and John put on trial as a result, the command to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, the desires stated in the prayer that we, would, we could have an, e- not that we could have an easier time of it, 
Their prayer was not that the enemies would be defeated. Their prayer was not that the gospel would be tolerated, not that they would leave us alone, not that they would find an easier place to preach, not that we would have a nice building, not that we would all get rich so we could buy a favor with the world. That's not their prayer. Their prayer is, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This prayer was a prayer that started with acknowledging God as the sovereign creator. This prayer used scripture as a foundation. This prayer was prayed in unity. And God put his stamp of approval on this prayer. And his endorsement came in a powerful way, verse 31 When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The prayer was answered. They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This prayer really represented the general attitude of the believers. Now the believers in the early church, by by the way, just to, to let you know in case you were to where this is a little secret that I learned, they weren't perfect. I once asked the congregation in my last place of ministry, wouldn't you want to have an Acts church or a New Testament church? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And after they all said yes, I went through a litany of the many issues that Scripture tells us that all those churches had. And there's a temptation to look back with nostalgia and say, well, it must have been great back then. But there were charlatans in the early church. There were vile sins that happened in the early church. There were disagreements. There were bad teachers. There's just about every problem we have in the church today. Nothing new under the sun. And certainly, in a sense, the early church would have been exciting. I think it is so interesting to study. But you know, we have the same Christ today. We we may face different challenges, but we can, like the early church, pray that in spite of those challenges, that God would give us boldness. Opposition and threats, when they had endured, what they had endured had happened to the Lord's people through the ages. They could not put their trust in people. Their experience was not unlike that of David long before. His question in Psalm 2, repeated from memory in their prayer, gave profound comfort. The church was in good company. God's faithful people have always been in trouble. It was the acid test that they were obeying God rather than men. We wonder if Jesus' words about persecution stirred within them as they prayed. He had called persecution for righteousness' sake blessed. Now, I'm not a prophet that can tell you the future. I don't know what's in store for the church in the coming years, whether we will have more time to preach freely or whether a time of persecution is coming, I don't know. But I do know for certain is that God is in control and Jesus has overcome the world. John 16, 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world.
I said as we started, believers should, should pray for boldness to share Christ and for God to heal the sick. And I asked you as I was preaching to be considering a few questions, and I'm going to say them again. See how you were thinking about them. You don't have to answer out loud, obviously. But I want you to take it and chew on it. First question was, do we have an urgency to share the gospel? Do we have an urgency to share the gospel? The second question was, when we're faced with difficulty and opposition, how do we pray? When we're faced with difficulty and opposition, how do we pray? And finally, do we trust that God will see us through the mistreatment we will face when we share the gospel? Do we trust that God will see us through the mistreatment we will face when we share the gospel? Those are our questions to chew on and wrestle with. And I encourage you, come back tonight. John's leading us again for a time of prayer at 7 o'clock. And uh, come and join us. And maybe we'll talk about that a little more just to see how you process those questions. But I said a lot of tough things. You know, I'm talking about tough things going on in the world. I didn't do that to discourage you. I want you to leave this message encouraged because with the prayer that they prayed, they, were, they received the answer they asked for. And I think our heart's desire really is that we would be like that. Like we would, we would want to push through and make the decision to commit to God over committing to anything else. And even in spite of challenges we face, I think we would want to do that. But do we have the guts to pray for, for more power, for more confidence, for more boldness? That's the question. Do we dare pray like that? Because I don't know. Maybe he'll shake us up a little bit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning.